As I mentioned last time, we were in Matthew. We were looking at the Lord's dealings with the rich young ruler. And that young man wanted to know how to gain eternal life. And he was earnest. He was urgent. Mark says that he came running, that he knelt down before the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he came to the right person. He asked the right question. It all seemed so encouraging, so good. He was unconcerned what the people thought. But the Lord, knowing his heart, replies in a way that exposes the real issues in that young man's life. And the Savior confronts him with this perfect standard of a holy God, with the law, and just astonish him because even then the, the young man, the rich young ruler, has the audacity to think that he's kept all those requirements. And this demonstrated that he had no awareness that he was a sinner, that he was bankrupt before God. And then the Lord tells him that he has to sell all that he has and give to the poor in order to follow him. Well, he wouldn't do that either because he loved his riches too much. They were more important to him than salvation in the Lord Jesus. And the Lord said that to follow him, there had to be conviction of sin, repentance, and a turning to him no matter what the cost, submitting to him in every way. And that price was too much for that rich young ruler. And so he goes away sorrowful. And it's a tragedy. The cost was too great. And friends, we saw that if someone wants anything more than the Savior, they forfeit Christ. Luke 14, 33, Jesus said, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so we saw that, that sobering lesson. And what we find is now the Lord Jesus uses that as an opportunity to teach his disciples more about the gospel and the true gospel and what it is to be truly rich. And he makes it clear what is of true value and what is not. You know, it is interesting because it links in very much with what Proverbs 13, 7 says. There is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. And really that points to the reality of what the Lord Jesus is saying here in verses 23 through to the end of the chapter. And if you look at that, verse 23, the Lord Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now just to clarify in these verses, the terms kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they are in this sense used interchangeably, but they are referring to eternal life, to knowing God, to knowing Jesus to be in right with him. And so shockingly, the Savior is saying it is very difficult for a rich person to be saved. And that is a, a clear statement, what the Lord says, and it's a, a shocking one. And the disciples, you know, they they just seen a demonstration of this with the rich young ruler. And they've been with him now for a time, and they'd heard the Lord Jesus say again and again, you must deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. And they knew that if people wouldn't do that, they could not be disciples of the Lord Jesus. That's also worth marking that the word used for hard in that verse is only used three times in the New Testament. And that's in this account in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. So these passages are defining just how difficult this whole matter is. And that's revealed in verse 24 when Jesus says, Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Can you imagine trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle? It's impossible. And so why does the Lord Jesus use a phrase like that? Well, according to some commentators, it was a very well-known phrase used in Persia at the time, which said, it is easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle. And so the Lord uses this phrase, but the camel was the largest animal in that area, so he substitutes that in. And it's a vivid way to describe something that is impossible. So how difficult is it for a rich person to be saved? Jesus says it's impossible as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, we need to understand that. What is the Lord saying there? Well, there are many who try to offer suggestions that lessen the impact. You know, there are some who say, well, the Lord, he isn't really talking about a needle. He's actually talking about a gate. And uh, they say that somewhere in the wall around Jerusalem, there's a really small gate, and it was called the needle gate. And it's small, and when someone came through with things loaded on a camel, well, they'd have to take off all the saddles, etc., and they'd have to squeeze the animal through this gate, and that's what the Lord is saying, it's hard to enter the kingdom. Well, there are a number of problems with that. The text doesn't mention a gate. There's also no scholarly evidence that a needle gate existed, didn't exist. Plus, why would people be trying to push camels through a tiny gate when a few yards away, there was the main gate into the city. There are other strange interpretations too, including some which call into question the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, and they're just to be set aside. So what's the Lord Jesus saying? Well, the Lord Jesus is speaking of the impossibility of salvation for those who are bound in riches. You know, the rich young ruler, he'd wanted eternal life. He came running, he came kneeling, but he couldn't enter. And you may be thinking, well, what about grace? You know, what does this mean that, that it's impossible? Well, let me explain. It's impossible for a person to be saved when they come for salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ on their own terms. That's what the Lord is saying. Nobody can be saved on their own terms, not even the one with the most earthly wealth and resources. And really what the Lord Jesus does again is he destroys all work systems, all ideas of self-righteousness, all attempts to earn salvation, all man-made efforts. People cannot save themselves. Friend, this morning, you cannot save yourself. You know, you have no power. You have no ability to save yourself. You have no ability to make yourself right with God, to deal with your sinful heart, and no amount of works, no amount of religion, no amount of trying to be good, of willfulness, can reconcile you, can make you right with a holy God. It is impossible. Now, we need to also look at this whole idea of the hindrance of earthly riches. You see, the impossibility of salvation coming on your own terms is made clear in the rich for a number of reasons. And let me explain why. Riches can bring a false sense of security. You see, those who have an abundance of wealth, material possessions, have a confidence in those resources. They just don't see a need for God. You see, they can buy whatever they need, surely. Surely. 
They don't need to depend on anyone else. It's interesting, reading around the city of Laodicea came up, and uh, that was a city in Asia Minor, one of the wealthiest cities in that part of the world in around 60 AD. And at that point, it was hit by a terrible earthquake. And the whole city was absolutely flattened. It was destroyed. And the Roman authorities, they sent out their emissaries to the people, and they said to the people of the city, well, we'll give you your resources to build back. You can rebuild the city. We'll pay for it. But the Laodiceans, they said, we don't want your money. We're going to use our own resources. And so they built the whole city without any help from the mighty Rome. And what it did was it fueled their pride. And that attitude infiltrated into the church in Laodicea. And so those of you who know, in Revelation 3, the Lord Jesus calls out that church for their lukewarmness. And he says to them, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, their wealth had ruined them spiritually. You see, a rich person can be complacent, assuming that their wealth can get them out of whatever problems they face in this world. And self-sufficiency is a major barrier to people coming to Jesus Christ. You know, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, Paul actually deals with the same principle in terms of believers. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, literally proud or superior, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And Paul is identifying a danger for those who have wealth, even for believers, and that is the danger of trusting their riches rather than the Lord. And he goes on and says, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. And really, that's the evidence of a changed heart. If they're not willing to do that, seeing their need to be stewards over what God has given to them, then there are serious questions to be asked about where they are with the Lord. And so it's incredibly challenging you see, the true believer places all they are, all they have under the lordship of Jesus Christ and they're willing to surrender all for him and use the resources that God has given to them for the gospel and the good of the Lord's people. You know, if you're a believer, none of what you have is yours in the sense it has been given to you by the Lord. And therefore, what I have, I should want to use for him as he sees fit. And the question is, do you have that perspective with your wealth? And Paul goes on in writing to Timothy, and he says, if they, if they do this, if they are willing to share, lay these things before the Lord, they will store up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life, real life. Real life is not in the money or the possessions, it's in Christ. And so when those with means are living for Christ, all of that is placed under his hand. And they're living with that eternal perspective. They're following Christ on his terms. They have an attitude that is willing to give all away for him. It doesn't mean that he will necessarily demand that. But you're willing because you treasure Christ more than riches. Now, for the rich person who's not a believer, 
It's impossible to live like that unless the Lord intervenes because their security is in their riches. Riches can give a false sense of security. But also riches bind people to this world. Those who are rich live for this world. Think of 1 Timothy 6. Let me read you some of the verses there. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, we live in a materialistic society and discontentment in people rules. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain that we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which draw men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, those who are rich can just end up living for this world. Everything revolves around what they have now. So their bank balances, their cars, their homes, their next holiday. Wealth forces people to keep their eyes on those things to keep their eyes on their business, their responsibilities, their next purchase, but they're never content. They're trapped in this cycle of wanting more, and so wealth becomes a snare. It becomes an obsession. Well, if I can just have a little more, if I just had a bit more, then all would be well. And so there's a snare. As one says, people can become so absorbed with the business of the world that they're not masters of their wealth, but their wealth is their master. And the Lord Jesus said very clearly, you can't serve God and mammon. And friend, if you're a believer this morning, I ask you and I ask myself, how much of my thinking, my planning, my effort, my concern is about money and wealth and possessions as distinct from the things of God? Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If all a person is concerned about is what he has in this world, there is no awareness of eternity. And the urgency of the gospel is set aside as riches deceive and bind the person to think this is it. And so do you see the difficulty that riches bring? And possible it is for a rich person to be saved who is bound to this world, who lives and dies for possessions in this world, who trusts in those as their happiness and security. In Luke 12, Jesus told the parable of the rich man. He had so many crops, he didn't know what to do with them all. I always find it staggering that he had no thought to help those in need, by the way. There were many around him who could have done with some of those crops. But no, he decides to build bigger barns and make himself richer. He had so much, he would never use it all throughout his lifetime. But he was so focused on all of that, he said to himself, Saul, you've many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Ease, enjoyment, apparently carefree. But then verse 20 to 21 in Luke 12, God said to him, Fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
You see, for the rich unbeliever, they're focused on this world, they're bound to this world, all their hope is in what they have, their resources to live a life of ease and enjoyment. But contentment will always elude them, and it keeps them on the path to destruction. Their prosperity in this world is often their destruction in the world to come. And all of this underlines the impossibility of a rich person being saved when they come on their terms. Now, this would have been shocking to the disciples. You see, not only had the rich young ruler departed, but this teaching went so against the the teaching of the, the rabbis who said it was sinful to give away more than one fifth of what you had. You see, they were wealthy and they wanted to carry on being wealthy. And they wanted to be seen as holy while selfishly keeping their wealth. So what they did was they made a religious law. And this enabled them to get richer and richer and then a token gesture of giving away just a little bit. And they even believed that you should get as rich as possible because the greater the value of the fifth that you gave away, that will buy more of your salvation. So one Jewish writing says this, almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the law and will deliver you from the condemnation of hell and make you perfectly righteous. One rabbi wrote, arms will atone for your sins. So the more you give, the more salvation you can purchase, the greater your position in the kingdom. And the Lord Jesus, he just calls all that out and he says, no, it is impossible for a rich person to be saved. And it is shocking because everybody at that time would assume that the rich are in the best position. And so what happens then? Verse 25, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? The disciples, they're blown away. They they couldn't grasp it. It was so against everything that they'd been taught. It was the rich who could buy sacrifices, who could give big offerings, who could do all that stuff that should secure salvation. And so now they say, well, if they're not going to be saved, who can be saved? Poor people couldn't buy their salvation. So if rich people can't be saved, who can? Verse 26, Jesus looked at them. I love that phrase. Literally fixed his eyes upon them and he looked intently at them and he said to them, with men, this is impossible. Well, what's impossible? Salvation. You can't be saved on man's terms with man's resources. You can't deal with your sin. You can't change your heart. You can't make yourself right with the holy God. Rich people cannot cast off their dependency on riches, their love for this world, their self-sufficiency. With men, salvation is impossible. And the Lord Jesus just takes out all works religion. But thank God that's not all he said. He says, with God, but with God, all things are possible, but God. And friend, even rich people can be saved because God is able to do exceedingly abundantly. God can do what is impossible for men to do. That is fantastic news because God can change hearts. He intervenes, he saves, he draws, he convicts. It's all of grace. And God can overcome the grip of sin. God can overcome the grip of riches and the love of money and the selfishness and the earthbound mentality because God can change the heart and he can change any heart. 
as one explains, the Holy Spirit can incline even the richest of men to seek treasure in heaven. He can dispose even kings to cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and count all things lost for the sake of the kingdom. No man's place or circumstances can shut them out from the kingdom of God. Let us never despair of anyone's salvation. John 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know, friends, that should also impact the way, if we're believers, that we reach out with the gospel. Think of 2 Timothy 2, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. You're speaking there of those who have responsibility, but amazing principles were to be winsome, gentle, patient, clear in declaring the gospel, but God must do that saving work. God must do the work that only he can do to give life, to give the gifts of repentance, of sin, faith in Christ. We cannot save any, but what is impossible for us, God can do. And when real salvation comes to a person, God gives life. God gives conviction and repentance and faith and trust. God enables sinners to turn from their sin, forsake all, and follow Jesus. As a stunning hope, because it means that there is hope for those who seem the hardest, those who seem the most unlikely. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a friend or a colleague or a neighbor, and you just think there's no way that they're ever going to be saved. I just, it just is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And that's our only hope. It's the only gospel, and it's the only thing which enables me to stand before you this morning in this pulpit with confidence, not in myself, but in the word of God and in the power of God. Not just opinions of men. It's God's work, and because it is, he offers hope to you. God can save even you this morning, for nothing is impossible with him. And then the teaching goes on, and Jesus speaks of true riches. Look at verse 27. Peter, he answers and he says to the Lord Jesus, he says, see, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter says, we came on your terms, Lord. We've left all to follow you. We've forsaken the world to follow you as, as our master. So what is there for us? Now, some really jump on Peter at this point and condemn him for asking a question like that. But, you know, I just think it's just honest and real. You know, they'd followed the Lord. They'd followed at great cost to themselves. And you can understand the mixture of emotions, maybe anxiety, frustration, or excitement, and he's just eager to know from the Lord Jesus what God has prepared for them that love him. And so Jesus says to him and to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord answers Peter in the most remarkable way. And he points to the consummation of all things, the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth, 
when the kingdom is realized, the King of kings, the Lord of lords reigns in glory and power. Think of Revelation 19. When the saints will reign with him and Jesus makes it clear that the disciples will receive a special reward for their sacrifice. Even judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the future kingdom where no unclean thing can enter. And then amazingly, the Lord shares a number of things beyond that specific promise to the disciples for all believers. And he says the poor, that is believers who have forsaken all in this life, are going to share in the triumph of Christ. That's an amazing thing. You know, if you're a believer this morning, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. You know, I've been looking at that in 1 Peter chapter 2. By sovereign grace, we've been made a holy, royal priesthood. Kings and priests who will reign with the Lord. And Jesus says too that the poor are going to receive more than they gave up. The poor being believers. Verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold. Now when you came to the Lord Jesus, if you are his this morning, maybe it cost you in terms of relationships maybe in your family, maybe with your parents, maybe with brothers or sisters or your spouse, and there's a gulf there. Maybe you lost closeness to them or it cost you in other ways. There was a a price to pay. But the Lord Jesus says that though it costs you, you never lose out with him. Of course, knowing him is the greatest prize, but he speaks about the blessings of this even now And I think one of the ways that is so clear of what he's speaking of here is that when you became a Christian, you're also given a new family in terms of the body of Christ. And so you have brothers and sisters and family in the local church and, in fact, across the world. A fellowship of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who embrace you and love you and care for you. And that's not just true in the future, it's true now. You know, it's amazing when you meet a believer that maybe you've never met before, but you sense that bond in Christ, there's something that knits you together. Or when your brethren, even those you've never met, they provide for you and they care for you. They give you a place to stay. They give you something to eat. There's a family of people who love Christ and you're brought into that family far more compensation than anything you ever gave up. And hundredfold is a way of explaining the amazing blessings that have been given. More is gained than ever is lost. And then ultimately, the poor inherit eternal life. You know, everyone who is the Lord's will enter into the fullness of what God has planned in eternity. Blessing now, blessing future, the fullness of the inheritance of what God has prepared for us. Think of 1 Corinthians 2. As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Or Romans 8, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 John, we shall be changed. When this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We shall be made like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. All that eternity can bestow. Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Believer, you will inherit eternal life. And it'd be staggering. You have that life now, and it will be fully realized in the age to come. If we are believers, we really are rich. And as verse 30 explains, many who are apparently great in the eyes of the world will be last, while many who are lowly and overlooked in the world will be first. Rich in Christ, both now and forever. It's beyond comprehension just how glorious eternity will be with him. And with all the blessings given to us in him, And whilst he purposes for us to serve him here, may it be that he will give us that right attitude to what we have and see that what we have is what he has given to us and that we use it for his glory in the advance of the gospel, knowing that we never ultimately lose out with the Savior. Remember that God is good and he is no man's debtor. One older writer puts it like this, the believer may seem to suffer loss for a time He may be much cast down by that afflictions that are brought upon him because he follows Jesus. But let him rest assured that he will never find himself a loser in the long run. Jesus himself has pledged his royal word on that. How to be truly rich, turn from the fading pleasures of this world and trust in Christ. You know, if you choose the riches of this world, you need to know that they're going to fade. They're going to pass on. They'll never satisfy you and you'll be left with ruin forever. For all that this world apparently promises to you, it can never satisfy you. And young people in particular, some of you even now are being drawn into the world. It is sucking you in, but it only seeks your ruin and to keep you away from the true riches in Christ. Jim Elliot, that missionary who was murdered by the Alka Indians in Ecuador, said right, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, if you're not a believer this morning, I urge you, you need to know that you're a sinner. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. And if you remain in that condition, then you will face condemnation and eternal punishment. But God, in his great mercy and love and grace, has provided the way in which sinners like you can be saved. And it's all in the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And, you know, Jesus came and he lived that perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He lived the life we could never live. And then he died on the cross to pay the price for sin. Enjoying the wrath of God poured out upon him. Dying in the place of those who would trust in him to take the punishment and the wrath they deserve. And then Death could not hold him. He rose again in great triumph and he conquered death and he's alive. And in him is life and forgiveness. And you've got to come on his terms. And if you repent of your sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior, no matter the cost, he will save you and he will keep you and he will bless you. And I pray that God will grant that to you. And he break the hardness of your heart with his sovereign power. Because what we cannot do, God can do. And may it please him even this morning to be at work to save, to build up his people and to keep them focused 
on the things that truly matter. Rich is in Christ, rich now and forever. Amen.